grace and peace to you in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Can you just feel Moses' frustration in today's Old Testament reading? The Israelites have been delivered from Egypt. They've seen God part the waters of the Red Sea. And they're now on their way to a home in which God has promised will be flowing with milk and honey. All should be well. Certainly by now, the Israelites should have some sort of a God-trusting spiritual compass. A compass that leaves them reassured that God's going to take care of them. A compass that calls them to drop the grumbling and begin rejoicing. For the Lord has delivered them from the hands of their captors. That's how it should be. But that's not how it is. The Israelite response is instead like that of the lady who enters a department store. She's startled when a band begins to play and the owner pins an orchid on her dress while handing her a hundred dollar bill. She's the store's millionth customer. Television cameras are focused on her and reporters begin doing interviews. And one of them asks, says, just what did you come here? What did you come here for today? Well, she hesitates for a minute, thinks about it. She says, well, I was actually on my way to the complaint department. Well, I suppose the lady could be excused. She had no idea of what to expect when she was going to the store. She didn't have any preconceived um, notions of, of how the store might respond to her entrance. But what about the Israelites? Always complaining despite the blessings God has given them. And this wouldn't be the last time. Sure, God takes care of them now. But what about later? And then later again. Well, to understand the Israelites, we have to understand their condition. We know the end of the story. They don't. Maybe you can identify with that. How often do we worry because we don't know the end of the story, only later to reflect back on a scenario and realize that God gave us manna in his time and in his way? Well, two things bear noting in this passage. First, The Israelites do have an excuse. Second, we're going to see in a few moments, you and I do not. Let's go back to Genesis. God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created vegetation, the seas, humanity. The first man and woman we learn are created in the image of God. And then God commands something of them. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. That's the first command. Our mind always goes back to do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God's commands can be positive as well. Just one problem. It assumes, these commands always assume that God will follow them. More specifically, they assume that people can follow them and not just to the letter but to the spirit of the letter those ancestors Adam and Eve still enjoyed perfect spiritual communion the law is spiritual because to follow it is not a matter of self-will 
It is a matter of living by the spirit that lives within us. And then what happens? Then they eat of the tree. Communion is broken. The spirit no longer lives in them. Death, destruction, evil, spiritual tyranny, and grumbling, those qualities become the marks of their souls and our souls. We now stand accused of our grumbling spirits because we have spiritual memory that we shouldn't grumble. But we do it anyway. The reality for us is that commands, commands that imply joy and fullness, they weren't given for the spiritually dead. Commands assume that we're capable of following them to the nth degree, the spirit of the law. So perhaps we shouldn't come down too hard on the Israelites for their grumbling. It's merely the mark of a person who is spiritually sick. Like us in our unspiritual state, they can't reconcile what they, sh- what they do with what they should do. They know they shouldn't grumble. They just can't help themselves. Yes, God gave them a nation. Yes, he gave them freedom from the Egyptians. Yes, he gave them deliverance through the Red Sea. And yes, he's going to give them a new home. But even God's gracious temporary, temporal gifts aren't enough to heal a soul that is sick. More is required. Well, not much has changed by today's gospel lesson. Jesus describes to us servants who are upset that they've done the work of the master from early in the day. But they receive the same wage as people who are hired much later in the day. They're not much different than the grumbling Israelites, really. The only difference is time. They grumble because they don't believe God has blessed them enough despite their work. The Israelites traveling through the desert grumble because they feel that God hasn't given them enough in order to sustain them. Well, this parable is about the Israelites as well. Most of them don't know it yet. The grumbling workers are the Israelites who begrudge God of bestowing any blessing to people outside the Jewish fold. The attitude seems to be God should give us more because we've worked longer and harder for his blessing. What a terrible blow to pride that God would give a dirty Gentile the same gift that he would give to the Israelite. And so the grumbling begins. It's the same people just a different scenario. External blessings don't spiritually affect the workers in the same way that external blessings don't spiritually reach the desert wanderers. Now I wish, I wish I could just leave you with some pop psychology comments about being nicer to each other. You know, it's what uh, Bishop Will Willimon refers to as a spirituality where we tell nice people to just be nicer. Tell you that it's not the mark of the Christian life to grumble. Maybe I should just encourage you to do a little bit better. The problem is that if I merely tell you to stop grumbling, I've maybe not done you much of a service at all, for it assumes something that simply cannot be assumed. 
It assumes that your spiritual state today is different than that of the Israelites wandering the desert and the Israelites who were working in the field. There may be no difference. I don't know. You see, they grumble and we grumble because ultimately we have hearts made of stone. The spirit that Adam and Eve received at creation does not naturally live in us anymore. We're grumblers. We grumble all the more because our hearts accuse us. We know we should be grateful, but gratefulness eludes us. I'm reading a book about John Wesley titled John Wesley, A Theological Journey. Early in his ministry, Wesley was offered the opportunity to travel to the colony of Georgia as a missionary, and he accepts. Over the course of his travels, he was influenced by the spirituality of a Moravian Christian community. Now, the author of this book, Ken Collins, he writes of a dialogue Wesley had with a Moravian leader named August Spangenberg after landing in Georgia. It reads like this. Deeply impressed by what he saw in the Moravian community, Wesley was emboldened to seek advice regarding his own moral and spiritual conduct from one of its leaders, August Spangenberg. Before he would answer, however, Spangenberg posed two questions to Wesley. First, have you the witness within yourself? And second, does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Wesley was deeply surprised by such probing questions and didn't know quite how to answer. Spangenberg nevertheless continued his queries. Do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley paused and said, I know he is savior of the world. True, Spangenberg replied, but do you know he has saved you. Wesley's response was once again both weak and indecisive. I hope he has died to save me. The kindly Moravian leader then brought matters to a head in a very pastoral way and asked, do you know yourself? Wesley responded, I do. But he later noted in his journal that he feared these words were vain words. It's important to note That at this point, Wesley was already well entrenched in the disciplines of the faith that have come to mark the Wesleyan movement. He fasted. He read the scriptures. He received the Lord's Supper nearly daily. He prayed unceasingly. There's not one outward mark of the faith he was missing. But Wesley had, in many ways, a grumbling spirit, even despite all those things that he was doing. When he was hurt, he lashed out. We learn of this time in Georgia where there's a a young lady who wins his affections and when she decides to marry someone else, his response is to withhold the Lord's Supper from her. See, Wesley, despite all the goodness, despite all the good things that he was doing, he still had a spirit with grumbling. He was doing all the right things externally within the church, but it was all dry. It was all dry 
at the point of this exchange was Spangenberg in 1735. But by the time of Wesley's death in 1791, not one, but two continents had caught Wesleyan-spirited revival. An entire generation of people were transformed from dead ritualism to a faith of deep transformation. Something changed deep in the heart of Wesley and it changed the world. I'm not going to tell you today to simply stop grumbling. That would be like Spangenberg telling Wesley to buck up and try a little harder. The problem was not Wesley's effort. The problem isn't your effort. The problem is misplaced trust. A short time after coming home from his disastrous missionary journey to Georgia, Wesley accompanied a friend to a small group reading of Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. Most of you have heard this Aldersgate story. Wesley found his heart strangely warmed. As Methodists, we often wax sentimental about this story, but I suspect few of us know the depths of this warmth. It wasn't merely a twinge of heat. It was a blazing fire that stoked something so deep within him it gave him an insatiable thirst for God and a red-hot sense of urgency for the proclamation of the gospel. Friends, if you desire grace through the scriptures, then read deeply. If you desire grace from the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, then eat and drink often. If you desire grace through the public worship of the church, then come often. These are all wonderful means through which Christ deepens faith. But know this, if you want it to have any meaning, if you want the fire of Wesley, then you must come to wrap your heart around one truth. Christ died for you. Perhaps you already believe this. God be praised. But perhaps there are some of you who say they believe, but like Wesley, don't know it's for you. Perhaps you've lived with the self-deception that I'll be in heaven because I'm a good person, even as your grumbling gives away that you're not as good as you would like to suppose. Repent, my friend. Salvation can't be merited. Salvation is not self-willed scripture reading. Salvation is not self-willed prayer. Salvation is not even reception of the sacraments of baptism or the Lord's Supper, though it is not my intent to disparage in any of those means. Those means have meaning only when the person doing and receiving has a heart wrapped around Jesus Christ. If you have never believed with any assurance that he died specifically for you, I invite you to recognize that standing before you right now is Jesus Christ. Look him in the eyes. If you cannot say with assurance that the work he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is for you, then continue to stare until he breaks your heart. And then grab hold of the gospel promise that he makes to you that whosoever should believe in Jesus Christ will not perish, but will have eternal life. When we finally latched on to that promise 
and made it our heart's central belief, only then can grumbling cease. You see, a heart that grumbles is a heart that tries to live by its own power. It doesn't trust God, and it doesn't want to wait on God. It's a heart that has lost focus of the reality that we can trust God in all things because we can trust him for the most important thing. That thing being that through Christ, we are both saved eternally and restored spiritually to the people that God always wanted us to be. The Holy Spirit really does transform us into people who no longer actively rebel against God or in today's context, grumble against God. We become people of joy because the Spirit of God lives in us. We become people with a song in our hearts because God has a song on his And we receive assurance of our salvation because our attitudes, our behaviors, our heart is transformed into one in which we're living by the ways of God. Our hearts are filled with the joyful promise that Jesus died for me. And a heart dedicated to living that promise, that heart will not know grumbling God replaces the broken spirit of grumbling with the spirit that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Not only are we forgiven for the guilt of sin, we are returned to the people that God wanted us to be in the garden. We're given the spirit of God again. And so God not only proclaims us righteous, He makes us righteous. That's what God does. That's what God will do for you. For you. Through a faith that believes Christ's salvation is for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have died for us. And Lord, if there is anybody here today, if there's anybody hearing these words today who has wondered, who has questioned, who knows what you did in a general way, but has never received it for themselves, I pray that you would work in their heart. I pray that they would look you in the eye see you, and then realize that the promise is for them. Lord, that's the only way that we receive victory. Victory not just through your disposition toward us, but victory from the sin and the brokenness of a fallen world. And so, Father, I pray for deliverance for everyone here today and everyone who hears these words, let them know that there is victory, but it has to come from you for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.